Well, let's do Acts today. So if you have your Bible, we're in Acts 17. That's where we are right now. And so we're kind of a little bit basically halfway through the book of Acts, a little over halfway through Acts. And so in Acts 17, of course, we're here on Paul's second missionary journey. The church of Antioch has sent him out again on his second missionary journey. And he has traveled to basically towards Europe, towards Greece is where he is. And so at the beginning of Acts 17, he starts out in Thessalonica and he meets persecution there as he shares the gospel. And so he travels down to Berea and guess what? He meets persecution there as he shares the gospel. So really to save his life, the believers there, the church in Berea got Paul out kind of in the middle of the night and they sailed to the city of Athens. And so Paul is in the city of Athens basically by himself because his other companions that are on this missionary journey with him, they stayed back in Berea and they just kind of got Paul out. So you still have those that are with him, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. They are still in Berea. Paul is in Athens here. And at the beginning of his time in Athens, he's basically a tourist. And he's just kind of walking around the city of Athens, seeing the city. It's a beautiful city. It's uh, probably for the really the world at this point, it's the cultural epicenter of the world. I mean, this is where all the philosophy, this is kind of where all the intellect and everything from the, in the Roman Empire comes from. It comes from the city of Athens. And so, of course, we have philosophers and we have people like Plato and Socrates and many others that come out of Athens. So Paul is just seeing the city. And the one thing that he sees that disturbs him greatly in the city of Athens is the number of idols there. There are over 30,000 idols that Paul sees as he walks around the city of Athens. 30,000. So, I mean, just think about it. They're making idols out of everything, but there are idols everywhere. There are only, at this point, about AD 50 when Paul's there, there's only about 10,000 people that live in the city of Athens, but they have about three idols for every person, I guess. So, 30,000 idols, 10,000 people, and... It just disturbs Paul. So what Paul does is what Paul always does. He starts sharing Jesus. So he starts out in the synagogue like he always does. He goes to the synagogue and he will share there. And then in Athens, he starts doing something else. He starts sharing, the Bible says, in the marketplace. And the marketplace, all that is, is just where people gather. It's where they shop, where they eat. It's where they gather. And especially in Athens, it's where people fellowship and they talk because they love to debate things. And they were very intellectual. And so they would debate almost anything. So Paul is in the marketplace, and the Bible tells us that he meets some specific philosophers. And they are Stoic philosophers and philosophers of the philosopher Epicurus. Epicurus. And so he's debating with these two different philosophies, and they're very different philosophies. One's almost like a hedonistic type philosophy, and then one is a philosophy that really believes in no God. I mean, they just don't believe in it. So uh, it's just kind of odd that they debate all the time, and now Paul's in the middle of the debate, and they start debating with him. They basically gang up on the Apostle Paul. So after listening to what Paul says, they take Paul to what the Bible calls depending on your translation, Mars Hill. And what Mars Hill is, is basically a place in Athens where more or less a panel of judges decide truth. Okay, so it's 12 judges. It would kind of be like if you're in Washington, D.C., which is kind of our political center, it would be like going to the Supreme Court. And so this is where Paul is taken. And he's going, they're going to decide truth. Now, here's the thing with truth in Athens, and it's very similar to truth today and especially Western civilization. 
Truth was always changing in Athens. Because if you had someone who could come and who could convince you that he, what he was saying was truth, guess what would happen to truth? It would change. Oh yeah, that sounds great. So I believe what you say. Well, somebody could come in right behind him and persuade them to believe something else. Oh, well, I believe what you say. So it's just an ever-changing, ever-changing culture because there is no truth. Because if truth changes and truth is always changing, do you have truth? You have no truth. There is no such thing as truth. And so Paul goes to talk to this panel of judges, Mars Hill, and he basically preaches a sermon to them to convince them that there is a truth and there's only one truth. And of course, we know what that truth is. What is that truth? It is Jesus Christ, which the Word of God gives us. And who is Jesus, according to John 1? What became flesh? The Word became flesh. So you can't separate Jesus and the Word. They're one and the same. So you can't separate them. So we kind of looked at a little bit of Paul's sermon last week. We're going to focus on one part of it today, I think the most important part. But we'll read it just quickly so you'll have context of where we're at. So look there in Acts 17, and we're going to start reading in verse 22 there. Okay, this is what the Bible says, verse 22. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens... I notice that you are very religious in every way. Okay, now that's not what Paul said to them. And I know that in English we're trying to get a translation of what he literally said to them. But this is what he said to them. He basically said to them, you are filled with demons. I mean, that's what he said. Because all the idols, the 30,000 of them, what are they all? They're all demonic. Every one of them are demonic. And so Paul basically says, you're all demonized. Now, here's the thing, that wouldn't offend them. Because to them, what would a demon be? Just another god, just another idol to worship. So they didn't give a rip. But Paul basically says, you're just full of demons. And so I don't know why we sanitize that, but we call it very religious for whatever. I don't know why that translates like that. But he goes on, this is what he says, verse 23. For I was walking along, and I saw many shrines. And one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one I'm going to tell you about. Okay, so what did Paul do? He basically took something where they're at. He took something from their culture. He took something from their religion. And he used that to point to Christ. Okay? So we do this all the time, all over the world, no matter where a missionary goes, whether it be in a Muslim culture, Hindu, Buddhist, whatever, you can take something from their religion or what they believe and you can use that to speak truth into their life. Okay, a great way if you ever come across someone who doesn't believe like you believe and has a completely different religion, ask them about their religion and ask them to tell you about their religion so that you can know something about it. You can know something they believe so that you can use that and then point them to Christ. And so that's what Paul does here. And so he is going to tell them about the unknown God, the God they know nothing about. He's about to tell them about it. So verse 24 said, He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since He is the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples, and humans' hands cannot serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. 
Now, what he says there is a big statement. We could talk about it a long time because this is totally contradictory to what they believe. They believe that all those 30,000 gods that they worship, they believe that those gods needed them. And the reason there were shrines and the reason they would take sacrifices and the reason they would take things to worship their gods and their idols like money and like food is that these things would make their gods happy in the afterlife or wherever they were, whatever they believed about these gods. So they serve these gods to help meet the needs of the gods. Well, what do we know about the one true God in heaven? Does God need us? No. Who needs who? We need God, and we are totally dependent upon God for our very next breath. It is by His grace that we even breathe in this earth. So we're the ones dependent on God. And Paul's trying to tell them, guys, you got it backwards. You got it backwards. God is the God of creation, and He created everything. And he goes on to tell them how. Verse 26, from one man, Adam, he created all nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and when they should fall. He determined their boundaries. So I know we get all caught up in the political system and the political race that's going to happen next year. You know what? You don't need to get too worked up about it because who determined it beforehand? God did. So I know we got it worked up. I know we want to do all these things to get who we want elected. Good luck with that. God's in control. Verse 27. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him, though He is not far away from one of us. Okay, if you want to read more about that, read Romans 1. He goes on, verse 28, For in Him we live, we move, we exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are His offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by a craftsman of gold or silver or stone. Verse 30, God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times. But now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set the day of judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed and approved to everyone who this is, who, to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. That's how they will know. Okay, so let's focus here on verse 30 because verse 30 is very, very important. And it's very, very important from a salvific standpoint, and we understand it. So it starts out there, and we talked a little bit about this week, but verse or last week, but verse 30 says, God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times. Okay, so what is Paul trying to say there when he says that God, it really doesn't mean he overlooked, it kind of means he looked beyond these things. So if you look beyond something, what are you looking? What are you doing? You see what's there in front of you, but you are looking kind of towards the horizon, right? You're looking beyond. So what is Paul saying here? Well, there was a time period that God knew in the horizon something was coming. What was coming in the horizon? Jesus Christ, right? Okay, the mystery that Paul talks about in Colossians 1, the mystery of Jesus Christ. 
So before Jesus Christ, Old Testament time period, were people ignorant to salvation and God's plan for salvation, which was to come. They were. So what did they have? They had faith in what? The law, because that's all they had, right? They had the law. Okay, was the law in and of itself enough to save? What was the whole purpose of the law? To teach you that you can't save yourself and that you have no hope, right? Okay, so what does that mean? Does that mean everybody before Christ was lost and died and went to hell? No. Because they were ignorant about Christ because Christ hadn't been revealed, right? But yet, people were saved. We know this biblically. The book of Hebrews tells us this. They were saved by what? Faith in what they had. But they didn't have it all, right? Does that make sense? Okay, so good question that even leads to questions about today from a salvation standpoint. I said earlier when we were praying about some of our mission things that there are 4 billion people on the earth today that really don't have knowledge of Jesus Christ in a way which would lead them to salvation. They might know aspects of the story. They might know about Christmas. They might even have heard about the cross. But to understand what Paul says later about repentance and what you have to do to come to faith and salvation, they don't know anything about. So does that mean God's going to overlook their ignorance? Now, people will say He will. But this is really important. Okay, God says here that He overlooks what? Ignorance. But He doesn't say they're innocent. There's a big difference in being ignorant and innocent, right? Well, there is. Okay, you can go outside and let's just say you didn't know that it was a law that you couldn't drive 150 miles an hour down Main Street and you can be arrested for that because you're reckless driving. You can claim ignorance, right? You can say, I didn't know that was a law. You can claim ignorance. But does that make you innocent? You still disobeyed the law, right? Even if you didn't know it was a law, you still disobeyed it. Are you still going to be punished even though you were dumb about the law? You're still going to be punished. Okay, ignorance is not an excuse. It is not a defense. Okay, so there are people all over the earth right now that are ignorant about the gospel of Jesus Christ because they've never heard. They don't know it. Does that make them innocent? I mean, the Bible's pretty clear about this. Who has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? Has anybody not fallen short of the glory of God? We're all sinners. And what points us and lets us know that we are sinners? The law, right? Okay, ignorance is not an excuse. So people must hear the gospel and they must turn to Jesus to be saved. 
There is no other way. And I know, and people, Christians who know the Bible, tell me this all the time. Well, John, I just don't believe that God would send someone to hell that has never heard about Jesus. I don't believe that. Why don't you believe that? Does God say that? Mm -mm. Because here's what we think in our mind. We think if somebody hasn't heard about Jesus and they're lost in their sin, we somehow formulate in our mind that they're innocent because they're ignorant and they just don't know. They're still sinners, correct? They're still sinners. And if you are a sinner, what does your sin do to you and a holy God? It separates you. And is there other ways to come to God apart from Christ Jesus? There is no. I mean, Jesus says that. You can read it. I am what? The way, the truth, the life. Not a way, not a truth. I am the way. And so it doesn't matter if you genuinely have faith in something else. Probably a lot of people in Athens genuinely had faith in something else. Was that enough to save them? No, not according to Paul. Jesus is the only one who can save, even if you haven't heard about it. So here's the whole point and the crux of everything from a church perspective. Whose fault is it that they haven't heard? Is it God's? Has God called people to go tell them about Jesus? Has God given us the resources to go tell them about Jesus? Has God done everything possible so that they can have Jesus? Who is at fault that they don't have Jesus? We're the at fault. We're the ones at fault. And so if it was true that someone would go to heaven just because they didn't know and just because they had never heard, if that was true, then the dumbest thing on earth that we could ever do for anyone would be to share Jesus with them in the first place. Because if I share Jesus with someone and then they know and they don't accept Jesus Christ, what am I doing? I'm condemning them to hell, am I not? Of course I am. So if I just leave them in their ignorance, aren't they a whole lot better off? If you say God will just save them because they don't know, that's not Bible. The only way to come to salvation, the only way to live in heaven with God forever in eternity is through Jesus. There is no other way. Now, we don't like that because we think it's unfair in our mind or something that God would do that. Well, God didn't do that. God made a way. Jesus Christ died on a cross, and God raised Him from the dead to make sure that you know that is the way and the only way to Him. And then what has He commanded the church to do? Make it known. And the great travesty of the church is that there are 4 billion people on the earth today that don't know. More people know about McDonald's and Coca-Cola than know the name Jesus. A lot more on this earth. Do you think Coca-Cola has more resources than the church? Do you think Coca-Cola has more money than the church? Does Coca-Cola have more people than the church? Not even close. Not even close. So why has Jesus not been made known? Because the church is divided. 
The church likes to do things that we like to do and hear things we like to hear. And we obviously don't like the truth of Scripture. Or we would do what we're called and commanded. So understand, we're called to share the gospel. And that's what Paul did in Athens. In the second part of verse 30, he tells us what is required for salvation. Because he says this, But now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. Okay, does that leave anybody out on this earth? That, yeah, if you never heard, you're good. If you, as long as you don't repent of your sins, you're good. Who does he command? Everyone, everywhere. That's pretty, I mean, that's encompassing, right? That's pretty encompassing because it encompasses the whole world. So everyone on this earth that wants to come to God, how do they come to God? Through repentance. Through repentance. Okay, now, especially in the day in which we live, in our culture, in our society, this is a doctrine that doesn't get preached a lot. It just doesn't. Okay, would you like to guess, out of all the churches in America, and there are a lot, I don't even know how many churches, just Southern Baptist churches, there's 47,000 Southern Baptist churches. So there are hundreds of thousands of churches across America. Would you like to guess the percentage of churches that are actually growing rather than shrinking? It's less than 15% are actually growing. 15% of churches are growing. Okay, out of that 15%, would you like to guess the percentage of churches that are growing because people are coming to Christ through salvation? They're growing because of conversions. See, a church can grow several ways. A church can grow like when people come from another church to our church, when they move from another city. That's one way churches can grow. Churches can grow biologically when people in the church have babies. Churches grow that way. But what is the way we're commanded to grow? Through people coming to faith in Christ Jesus, right? That's the way the church is supposed to grow. So would you like to guess the percentage of churches growing by conversion? So 15, less than 15% are growing, but how many are growing by people coming to faith in Christ Jesus? About 2%. Not 2% of churches growing, but 2% out of the 15%. Okay, why are churches not growing because people are being saved? Why is that? Well, we might not be. We're not inviting and people aren't coming, obviously. We're not witnessing. We're not sharing. Okay. Great theological question for me. Are people supposed to come to church to be saved? Now we've turned it into that because it's easier for us because I can invite someone to church and they'll hear the gospel at church and then what does that do? It takes the responsibility off of me of what? Sharing the gospel. How many come and see invitations are in the Bible? 
You ain't got many. You got one. When Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and Jesus wins her to faith, and what does she do? She goes to her village of Sychar and brings everybody in the village back out to see Jesus, right? Come and see the man who told me everything I'd ever done. They wanted to see that because she had done some things. So they wanted to see how this man knew all that. So they came and saw Jesus. But does Jesus say, come and see? What does Jesus say? Go and tell. So the church is supposed to go and tell, correct? Go and tell. And we're to tell people about Jesus. We flip that upside down and we think it's a come and see now. And it almost has to be because nobody's going to tell. Right? So what is the church left to do? We got to do it because nobody else is doing it. But when they do come and see, which is not a lot of lost anyway, what do they hear? In most churches in America, they hear a lot about grace. They hear a lot about love. They hear a lot about faith and belief. But how much do they hear about sin? How much do they hear about repentance? How much do they hear about judgment and God's wrath? How many sermons do they hear on hell? It's not a lot. Very few churches like going there. Because it's not fun going there. Right? How many people want to come to a Christmas Eve service and hear about hell? Is that what we want on Christmas Eve? Easter, whatever, when people, guests come to church? Okay, here's a good question. I can talk about belief and faith and grace and love all day long when people come who don't know Jesus Christ. Is that enough to save them? What does God command? He requires everyone everywhere to do what? Repent and come to Him. That's what He requires. So how do you know what to repent from if you don't know anything about your sin? You don't. You can't. Because the word for repentance here, there's three words basically in the Bible for repentance. You have two Old Testament words. One, nakum, that just means to literally turn around. One, sub, means to return, to turn, return. Here in the New Testament, metanoia means to change your mind. Okay, so what is repentance? Repentance is literally you're going one direction, but you change your mind, turn around, and go the other way. Okay, that's repentance. So what are you changing your mind about? Well, you're changing your mind about Jesus. You're changing your mind about your sin and what your sin has done and why Jesus had to come in the first place. 
That's what repentance is. I mean, the perfect illustration of repentance for me is always Luke 15, the prodigal son. And you know the story of what the prodigal son does and where he ends up in the distant land. And he's in the distant land and he lives at large in the distant land until all his money runs out. That inheritance dries up because he spends it real quick. And he is left with nothing and he is starving. He's hungry. He's feeding pigs and he wants to eat the food. He's feeding pigs. That's how hungry he is. And what does the Bible say happens to him? He comes to what? His senses. He comes to his senses. What does that mean? He changed his mind. It's like, okay, this is stupid. I'm sitting with pigs and living with pigs when my father has a great house. My father has land. My father has cattle, everything. My father has hired servants that are living a whole lot better than I'm living. He thinks that. He comes to his senses. And what does that do? It changes his mind, but does it change his direction? Yeah, it changes his direction, but it's what he did. He gets up and he goes back, right? So repentance is both changing your mind and changing direction. It changes the way you live. And he goes back to his father and he's going to beg him to just take him back in as a hired servant. But what does his father do? He's there and runs to him and opens him and welcomes him and clothes him and feeds him and does all these things. And it's just a picture of salvation. What happens when you come to your senses, when you realize that Jesus is the only way, that changes your mind, but then it changes your life because it changes your direction and you turn to Him. That's repentance. And can you have salvation apart from that? No. No. Because why? Because what does God command? Everyone everywhere to do what? Repent. Repent. I'm telling you, there are a lot of people in church who have believed in Jesus Christ. But there are a lot of people in church who have never repented of their sins. Do you see the difference in that? There is a big difference in that. You can have belief without repentance. What does the Bible say about the demons? Do they believe in Jesus? Well, yeah, they believe in Him. So you can believe in something, but it doesn't change your life or change your direction, right? How many people do you see in church that have no fruit in their life of Christ at all? There's a lot of them. So repentance, true salvation changes your life. It changes your direction. And that's what is required according to Paul here. That is what is required. Now here is a great thing, great question here about repentance. Is repentance something that you can do on your own? No. Repentance is a gift from God. Look back real quick. Acts chapter 11. You can just turn a few verses back. Because in Acts chapter 11, I believe repentance is kind of tailed what it is. In Acts chapter 11, uh, Peter has just kind of been told by God to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And guess who gets mad about it? The church gets mad about it. And he has to go back to Jerusalem and explain himself. And he explains what happened and what the Holy Spirit did. But then look at verse 18, Acts eleven eighteen. 18. When the others, talking about the church in Jerusalem, when the others heard this, they stopped objecting and began praising God. They said, we can see that God has also given Gentiles the privilege of repenting of their sins and receiving eternal life. That privilege there, that word there just means the gift. It just means a gift. So God granted the Gentiles the gift of repenting of their sins and receiving eternal life. 
So how do you repent of your sins? How do you change your mind? How do you change your direction? It is all through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a gift of God. It's His grace. No one can be saved apart from the Holy Spirit of God. And so through the Holy Spirit of God, according to Jesus, He convicts you of your sin and righteousness and coming judgment. And through that conviction, when you come to your senses and you turn and you go back to God, just like that prodigal son, through repentance, you are what? Saved and receive eternal life. This is a huge part of salvation that the church just doesn't preach. And the reason the church doesn't preach it is because to preach it, you have to preach sin. And you have to preach people are sinners. And you have to preach the horrors of sin. And it's not a fun topic. But I'm telling you, without the topic, people aren't saved. Without knowing that you are a sinner, do you know that you need to be saved in the first place? No. You have to know you're a sinner. And you have to know what your sin does to you. And in our day, nobody does that. Back in 18, or 1937... The American Track Society, who used to make all these tracks for people to see the gospel, they did a little kind of contest where they were going to give $1,000 to somebody who wrote the best book about the gospel. And 1937, $1,000 is a lot of money. And so the gentleman who won it was Dr. Harry Ironside, if you ever heard that name. But he was the pastor of Moody Memorial Church in Chicago there, Moody Church. And you know what he wrote a book on? He wrote a book on repentance. And this is what he said in 1937. He said, repentance is the forgotten doctrine in the church. And he goes on in that book to say that solid, foundational, fundamental churches who preach the Word of God have all forgotten the doctrine of repentance. Now, if that was true in 1937, how much more true is it in 2023? It's a whole lot more true. And so we need to talk and preach repentance. Harry Ironside. Yeah, he's got a lot of great books if you want to read them. Harry Ironside. But of course, let's finish up with verse 32 because this is honestly what happens whenever the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached. So it says, When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead... Some laughed in contempt, but others said, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them. But some joined him and became believers. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the council, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. Now, this is fascinating. We just kind of read over this most of the time. But Dionysius there, he would have been one of the judges listening to Paul. He was one of the 12 judges at Mars Hill listening. And Paul did what? He convinced him that he was speaking truth. And how did he convince him? Because he talked about the resurrection. That was the convincing proof. God raised Jesus from the dead. That's how you can know all of this is truth and everything else you hear is a lie. Dionysius heard that and believed. Now what's fascinating about Dionysius is he later becomes the bishop of the church in Athens. So he's basically the first pastor of the church in Athens. 
And if you go on and read about church history, he basically is the first saint of the Greek Orthodox Church. So he is kind of the founder of Greek Orthodox. And so he's a pretty important dude in church history. Now, the Marius there, we have no idea who that is because we never hear from her again. But she is very uh, evidently a prominent lady who follows Paul and believes his teaching about Jesus. She was probably there listening, kind of on the outside, listening to what he said there at Mars Hill, and she believed the truth. Now, this is just reality. Whenever the truth is shared, whenever Jesus is shared, whenever people are called to repentance, some will believe and some will what? They will not believe. That is reality every time the gospel of Christ is shared. I know we don't like that because when we share Jesus, we want everybody to believe, right? And we feel defeated and we feel like we've done something wrong if they don't believe. Don't feel that way. You're not called to save anyone. But what are you called to do? Faithfully share. wonder how many people Paul shared the gospel with that didn't believe. A whole heck of a bunch of them. But did that stop him from sharing the gospel? No. He shared with a greater heart and a greater passion than any of us because he understood the ramifications of what happens if people did not believe and repent and turn to Jesus. Go read Romans chapter 9 if you want to see Paul's passion for those who need to believe. And so God has called all of us to that end. And I'm telling you, the only way to Jesus is through repentance. I mean, think of the, just think of the Bible in terms of how many times repentance is mentioned. Can you read a prophet in the Old Testament that doesn't talk about repentance? No. God is always calling people back through repentance. Do you know what Jesus' first sermon was? Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, meaning kingdom of God is here. Repent. Luke's version of the Great Commission, do you know what it says? It says you call people to repentance. You must repent and turn to God to be saved. Why? Because He commanded it. Now here, just real quick, let me end with this. Repentance, like salvation, is not a one-time event. I mean, I know we like to think about salvation in past tense, and you like to tell people, well, I was saved on December the 4th, 1944, whatever it was. Well, you did have a time in your life where you gave your life to Christ, but salvation doesn't stop there, does it? No. Sanctification, that is God creating you anew, making you like Christ every day. Salvation is a process until you're glorified and be with Him forever once you die and go to heaven. So God is continually saving you. We can't lose that salvation, but He's continually working, shaping, molding, shaping you, sanctifying you into the image of Jesus. So how does He do that? One of the primary ways is through what? repentance because unfortunately every one of you after you were saved have done what you've sinned yeah you've probably done it today by the way uh i know i have and so what are we called to do when we sin repent i mean what is first john 1 9 if you what confess your sins he is faithful and just what do you have to do to confess your sins? You've got to be convicted of that sin. You've got to have knowledge of that sin, and you've got to confess it to God. That's repentance. James says, James 4, wash your hands, you sinners. What is that? Repentance. So repentance is not a one-time event. It's a continual action 
just like salvation is a continual action. So maybe some of you need to repent today and turn to God and let Him cleanse you so the Holy Spirit of God can move and work in your life and work through your life so others can come to faith in Christ through repentance. It's a huge biblical theme in the Bible. I hope we grasp it and understand it. Well, let me pray for us. Lord, we love you. Thank you.